In a very particular way, can we time travel? This question and more today on. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Bollinger. And if you've been listening to us through this new limited series season, I really appreciate it. It's been nice to see the folks who've uh, sort of shown up on the various podcast uh, feed uh, aggregators like uh, Podbean or, you know, the uh, Apple Podcasts uh, app, etc., etc. So it's been really great to see the support out there this season. And today, what I'm going to do is something a little bit different than what the other episodes so far this season have been. And I'll get to that in just a second. But first, I just want to say what I what I have been saying throughout this new limited season is that we love the main feed folks. You know, we love that you've listened to the interviews we've done with, uh, you know, fellow academics as we go through our theme this season of thinking about issues of collective memory, and thinking about issues of historicization, but doing that, at least I hope, in a fun way by using pop culture examples. But, you know, we also have lots of other interesting ideas and other interesting episodes that, or concepts rather, in other episodes that we explore in the new, absolutely new, bonus episodes that we're releasing through Patreon. And on top of that, if you were to be good enough to subscribe, or maybe as the holiday season comes up, maybe have a friend turn them on to us, maybe uh, uh, chuck in a few dollars through Patreon, they not only would get access to the uh, new bonus episodes, but also the entire archive from our, or basically, it roughly translates to, I don't know, maybe three seasons worth or something of our old material that features uh, almost every episode, all three of us, uh, sometimes it's just two of us, as well as certain interviews like uh, our famous, somewhat famous, at least for our, our podcast, <laughs> uh, interview with uh, Newton Minow, former FCC chair, or uh, you know, we had a wonderful conversation with the uh, the first truly like official Jim Henson biographer. So, if you're interested in getting access to all that good uh, archival episodes, which again they're they're pretty evergreen. You know, this has never been a podcast where it's like this very particular issue happened this week. It was in the news cycle for 72 hours. Everyone was talking about it, and then they sort of forgot about it, right? So. It's not like one of those podcasts where you look at it or listen to it rather and are like, oh, this is this is old hat, you know, who cares? It's it's issues and and thoughts about media and about television and about some of this content and what it means within culture that I think you can enjoy no matter when you're listening to it, whether you listen to it with us from the archive, you know, two years ago or two months ago. So again, just politely reminding you that if you're interested in listening to more of, of what we've done here. Um, please consider uh, giving in a, a dollar or two or three or whatever uh, over on Patreon. And again, you can find us at Inside the Box, the TV history podcast on Patreon. And if you want to know what those um, 
old archival episodes are about, if you need those episode summaries, you just go to on, onto our traditional website, and that's TV History Pod. Again, tvhistorypod.com. Okay? So, today is going to be a little bit different as a main feed episode because what I normally like to do, and to sort of show you how the sausage is made here, is I normally have almost a, a script version of what you would see at the beginning of like a journal article for an academic article, right? We, we really try to script this out as much as we can and then also leave room to sort of have a conversation around it or riff or, or whatever you want to call it. And today, I'm doing it a little differently because there's these ideas that I've been kind of coming back to and coming back to and coming back to, and they are in no way, shape, or form in any sort of uh, finished form right? It's it's not there yet. I'm still in the process of thinking through them. Now, I think if this is done poorly, this would be actually kind of boring for, for a podcast audience. But, and I don't mean this in an egotistical way. I mean this in a, I think there's enough sort of nuggets here from areas of, of life and media that I think are very familiar to you guys that I think will keep your attention, okay? And there's really only three main main areas here that I want to talk about. So this episode is going to feel, in a sense, almost almost kind of like a, a bonus episode, right? It'll kind of feel like this more free form. We're taking a few more chances, trying a few more experiments, uh, rather than sort of a set structure of, here's my intro, here's today's guest, you know, here's our conversation, bop, 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 okay? So the one idea that I keep coming back to over and over and over again is that I am absolutely fascinated by this idea of curated media culture. And you combine that with the idea at how fast media is changing. The short version of that would be, we've had smartphones, like truly smartphones, the way we understand them since, I don't know, I should say maybe the past 15 ish years, a little bit longer. And then I'd say around, uh, I guess around, oh, I guess a little longer than that, but then around definitely 14, 15 years, social media as we understand it, and then increasingly uh, streaming video on demand. And so that world allows us, obviously, to sort of pick and choose what we want to look at, right? The simple thing there is the algorithm-based uh, search and, and, and social media app is a mousetrap, right? And we're always about building a better mousetrap. And here, its goal is not to trap the mouse, although if you want to be cynical, you can, you know, make that, <laughs> have that a metaphor however you want. But it's, you know, if I looked at X, Y, or Z on Tuesday, it assumes you want to look at more of X, Y, and Z on Wednesday. And then it'll start making differentiations between that uh, uh, in a more granular sense. And so it gets even better at returning what it thinks you want more of. So that's where we can really start to both consciously and automatically curate the information and content we, or, or entertainment rather, that we really want to look at. Then on top of it, we have the fact that that smartphone that I just explained to you or reminded you about, you know, that's not the world I grew up in, right? That's not the media environment or the media ecosystem that, uh, that I'm used to. And if I'm being completely honest here, I will say roughly, I don't want to date myself too much here, but I think I've been teaching undergraduates one way or the other now for around 10-ish, 12-ish years, 
one in one form or the other, either as an actual faculty member or, you know, back when I was a grad student. And it blows my mind at how different 2009 is to 2021. You know, just in that social media environment and smartphone-based social media environment, how different things are. So the point is it's moving really, really quickly. So as you know, what I'm really interested in is looking backwards a bit, right, in the ideas of what is history, how is history constructed, particularly if it's active construction on the part or from the intentions of some particular group, and of course, what memories do we hold on to as a group that establishes identity, and, you know, of course, what any collective memory scholar is interested in, the role that trauma plays within collective memory, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So what I'm interested in with those issues of collective memory and history in, in the sense of, of media running quickly is, is something I'm calling today as, as a place, placeholder title, and that is sticking with the stars you know, <laughs> okay? And what I mean by that is I'm interested in how prevalent is the phenomena that of people who sort of get stuck or if you want to call it arrested development, maybe, where they kind of get stuck in a static position where they are just revisiting media content that they either grew up with or are familiar with from some younger part of their lives. And they kind of, because of curated uh, the ability to curate their media for themselves, they kind of are, are stuck in that loop. They just kind of boom, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. They go back to it and back to it and back to it and back to it and back to it. And so that's why I was sort of being playful at the at the top of the show. And I asked, you know, is time travel possible? Because in a sense, this seems like the closest realistic way of doing that in a sense of if a lot, not all, but if a lot of our interactions these days are mediated, i.e., you wake up in the morning, you look at your smartphone. You then jump on a Zoom meeting with so-and-so. Then you FaceTime your family. Then you go look at something uh, online to read or watch a video. And then you maybe have a, a job uh, meeting you know, for on Zoom or something or a phone call. On and on and on. The point is, we definitely are living in an offline world, right? There is a physical reality, right? Right now, my right hand is 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 resting on my my desktop here. I I feel that fake wood. I'm sitting and living in this physical environment. My senses are all engaged, but at the same time, and we even have the counters on our phone as far as screen time. We know that we're dealing with one another's and our our ideas, our fantasies, our hopes, our dreams, within this mediated way. So I'm fascinated by this idea of how prevalent it is for people for a multitude of reasons, and I'd have to survey those people to really get why they do what they do, if they exist as much as I think they do, of these folks who just sort of decided, for whatever their reason, to sort of hover and exist within these sort of love button, if you if you will, areas of content that just makes them feel good for whatever, whatever reason. Okay. Now, most of you listening are probably thinking one way or the other, or have thought for the last minute, Jonathan, you're talking about nostalgia, 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 nostalgia. It's a nostalgia industry, Jonathan, of course, right? Retro everything. We know that you don't have to talk about that. That's what it is. Nostalgia. Now, 
nostalgia is definitely a player in this. And I'll talk about that, but, and this is where I reveal both where I'm being objective and logical and fair, and also my own blind spots, my own biases in that traditionally nostalgia was looked at as a negative or primarily, I should say a negative um, phenomenon, a negative trait. It meant that people only engaged in nostalgia because they were fearful of their current circumstances. And so they were always looking for an escape hatch to romanticized, meaning i.e. unreal, um, depictions of previous times, previous lives. And so if we could only reach back there, now I feel safe, now I feel familiar and protected, and so that's the role nostalgia serves. Much better scholars than I, who focus specifically on nostalgia, and I never have, have shown that nostalgia is actually much more complex than that depiction, And that it serves much more useful roles. And um, um, uh, Boim, B-O-Y-M, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, rather young, she was one of the better better scholars in sort of expanding our understanding of, of nostalgia and its different roles. Now, having said that, and intellectually I agree with that, and yet if I'm being honest and I reveal my blind spot... I always was brought up with the negative connotation of nostalgia, and it's really hard for me to get beyond nostalgia as a negative um, impulse, particularly if you tie it in with a very sort of greed-focused business decision who's just trying to sort of pump money out of a potential audience by by hitting those love buttons. Or to use more current terminology, this would be phrases like fan service, right? We're not actually trying to make a film here. We're just engaging in fan service. So there's certain familiar iconography that you will have a positive affinity for and thus give it a good rating or give over your, your credits or dollars to support and, and watch the film. And again, that does happen, right? There are companies who do that. We've seen films that have been made like that or cartoon reboots or, you know, comic books come back again and blah, 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 right? It does happen. But I don't want to let my opinions and biases lead this discussion because, again, nostalgia does have some positive therapeutic uh, purposes, um, particularly with certain kinds of trauma. So, The idea here of quote-unquote time travel and getting stuck within loops that, because of the way technology is these days, allows us to get potentially stuck in those loops and not necessarily grow or advance in our media choices is the focus of this. And while nostalgia is a part of it, it's only one part of it. Okay. So I want to lead off here with an example from a film that I'm guessing... I'd say about half of you are probably familiar with and the other half isn't. And that is the 1979 film uh, Being There, starring Peter Sellers. It was like the last really great film that he did before he passed, and it was a different role for him, right? It wasn't the typical uh, Inspector Clouseau stuff. And let me just give you the short version of it for you, but basically it's about Sellers' character, um, uh, uh, Chance, who is a very simple man, and he's basically a manservant his whole life. And after entering into the world, he is mistaken for somebody else, 
And it's sort of a commentary on our political system and how someone who isn't really who we think they are uh, becomes advanced into the upper echelons of society, even though he himself is in no way, shape or form able able to uh, perform that role. Um, but we we make him a vessel into who we want him to be and think he is. And so we sort of let him ride on that, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a really rough uh, summary of it, but it's a really interesting film. But what I'm taking from that film is really the intro. And that is we first, and I'm sorry, I'm spoiling the intro for it from you, from the movie for you. I apologize, but I kind of have to. So we start with Chance inside the house that he's always been in, right? He's he's always served his wealthy benefactor as sort of a valet, a cook, you know, a, a gardener, you know, cleaner, all that stuff. And it's definitely a sort of old house, moneyed, you know, that sort of thing. And it really reminds you almost of some sort of old rich home that you'd seen in any old film, right? It's this, it's this land of, uh, not land, but space of, of means, right? A space of resources. And then as the plot moves and he finds out the guy, old guy died and he can't stay there. He's got to move on with his life, even though he's now middle-aged, he walks out the door and you realize that the entire neighborhood around that nice old home has completely gone to to shit, right? It is the standard story of any sort of U.S. city that has fallen on hard times. And, of course, the filmmakers there are trying to show you that uh, Chance, in many ways, is sort of stuck in his time, stuck in his place, and certainly his old benefactor was, right? He never really advanced, and they sort of lived in this hermetically sealed world that uh, it never changed, even though the world around them did. And obviously that is sort of the symbol here for what I'm talking about, right? Is imagining the person who is sort of glued to their tablet, sitting in their apartment or their room or dorm room. Well, maybe not dorm room because that'd be a little too young, but apartment or home or whatever. And they are just basically in some year, you know, right now, I don't want to date it, but you know, it's, it's uh, uh, this podcast too much, but it's not these years anymore. But, you know, let's say they're still stuck in, I don't know, 2004, 2000, 1996, 1989, 1986, you know, 1972, etc. So that is the situation um, that is, um, that's the situation that I'm sort of interested in. So now here's the point of this format of this episode that I don't really like. And that is, I don't feel as prepared because I haven't thought through all these ideas as much as I should have. And this is the kind of podcasting I actually personally hate, (laughs) which is people just doing low, low effort, you know, just not really working at anything. And then expecting you to not only listen to it, but uh, if this was a paid episode, right, expecting you to pay for it as well. Um, I hate that, but I'm being honest. I'm I'm getting closer to that than the kind of content I usually do um, because I'm still working through these ideas. So, going off just my memory and not actual cited sources, so I might be wrong here, but some of the areas here that I want to cover are three, okay? One is the idea of memory bubbles. The other is sort of what I teased at before, persistent nostalgia. And the third is the idea of dead celebrities. And I'm going to break down each of those in succession. But before I do that, let me 
talk about some research that, again, it's a little fuzzy in my brain. I should have gotten the specific citations, but I don't have them in front of me. But these would be things that I would call sort of context that I think would help to strengthen the ideas here um, ultimately, although they'd have to be expanded on. So the first is I remember that there was a study done that said basically, and again, my age might be off here by a year or two, but it said something like that people's popular music interests and tastes tend to taper off or completely stop. I believe it's around age 27. So if that is in fact true, if I'm remembering that accurately, I think that would leave credence to this idea that there is a tendency to only go backwards and staying in certain areas that you you like. Now, there may be additional research these days based on streaming music services and suggestions via algorithms for new music that is similar based on certain um, metadata criteria that may be going against that previous finding, right? What I mean is maybe there is now a 35, 36, 38, 42, 44, 51-year-old out there who would have normally stopped their intake at 27, but because of those algorithms, now we're getting more suggestions and now we're taking more of a chance because it's a bit automated for them. You know, they're not having necessarily go to a record store anymore and find out what the new song is. That might be sort of stemming that tide a little bit. Again, haven't done the research here, so I'm not quite sure. The other contextual idea is there's definitely research out there in terms of memory that shows how we like to think of memory as being so personalized and individual and unique, right? In that no one could really have any other memories, or they certainly couldn't have our memories. But there's research out there that, that's been done where basically if you show enough imagery to people over and over, and again, I'm a little fuzzy on this, but basically the idea is you show enough imagery to people over and over and over again, and you present it in a certain way that they may much more easily take them on as a quote-unquote memory of themselves or at least feel a familiarity with them in a way that approximates memory. That the idea of sort of, and this is from science fiction, of course, but the idea of implanted memory uh, isn't as far off or fiction as we, we tend to think it is. So my idea here is that if memory is a little bit more malleable than we we think it is, then I think it just sort of reveals the sort of arbitrariness of going the other way, right? If I can sort of implant potentially new memories just based on habit and based on familiarity, then the fact that some of these people, you know, again, I'm guessing here, I haven't done the research yet, are stuck in sort of memory loops or memory ruts that are basically mostly, uh, sorry, that are based mostly on habit, then I think it just sort of strengthens that argument, right? There is no innate reason for you to be stuck in that loop other than familiarity, comfort, and because the smartphone in your hand or tablet in your hand just makes it so easy to go back through the same playlist of songs or the same playlist of videos so that you keep reliving you know, whatever you want to call it, the, the the, the favorite season of the office, you know, when you were watching it back in whatever, 2006 or something, or that favorite album or the favorite funny SNL sketch or the favorite, you know, whatever examples in your heads. So those would be two ideas that I would use as context. Um, but again, obviously I haven't fleshed those out yet.
So now let's look through those three ideas that I had just laid out a few minutes ago. And the first is memory bubbles. And really this is as much about giving a label or, or providing some vocabulary for the ideas that I've already sort of talked about. The idea of being stuck in a loop. Let's instead call that, let's getting stuck in a bubble, right? You, you have it in your mind, right? Something from science fiction or cartoon or something where the character has been enveloped in some nefarious bubble, you know, bubble from a bubble gun or a bubble machine, right? And they're floating away. They're stuck in that bubble. And the language here is coming from uh, Pariser, who always talked about the idea of filter bubbles when it comes to search browsers. And that is just what I was talking about up top. The algorithm learns your behavior. It's a stupid machine on and in and of itself, so it's just programmed to do what it's programmed to do, which is to provide you more specific uh, search results based on what you wanted the previous hour or the previous day, and it's learning from your behavior. The downside of that is, is it, you know, if you want to be really cynical, instead of a bubble, you can say it's a cage or a net. And basically that net or that bubble or that cage increasingly gets smaller and smaller and smaller until you're really constrained by it. And so if Pariser would say you're trapped in a filter bubble and that you are only looking at what it's curating for you and you are not as you know, informed about broader issues or issues that may not necessarily directly affect you or what you want to look at. And of course, there are implications for that regarding a thriving democracy or an informed citizenry, etc. But what I was also thinking about in this sense, as far as if we're looking at nostalgia as either positive therapeutic to deal with trauma or as a sort of vice or crutch or escape mechanism to kind of get through trauma or perceive trauma. It's sort of a conservative impulse here. Um, I mean that in a truly specifically definition uh, way. And I don't mean that in a political way, but I'm thinking about it in the sense of this isolated viewing. And I think about seeing my students on campus, although admittedly, and again, I'm dating the podcast here, but I haven't physically been been on campus now for almost two years. I've been very fortunate that I'm teaching online during these times. But I think of the students that I see in the hallways on campus between classes, and they are sometimes they're texting with friends, but honestly, a lot of times they are just consuming some sort of television, what I would call television or video content. And some of it is the latest and greatest, but honestly, a lot of it is the sort of comfort food stuff. You know, it's their favorite episode of The Office, favorite episode of Parks and Rec, that kind of thing, Atlanta, whatever. And so I think about it in a sense of, are this, is this the sort of neo-isolated sort of latchkey kid phenomenon, right? That, you know, I did have to spend a lot of time on my own, but I at least was fortunate enough to always have a phone or I could share a phone with a sibling or a tablet. And so now I'm sort of, I've always been actively constructing this sort of isolated bubble to protect myself due to the lack of social interaction And as I get older, will that impulse strengthen to sort of return to that time? Not necessarily because it was the best time, because again, I was isolated and alone, but there is a comfort there that comes from, say, a favorite cartoon or a favorite TV episode or a favorite film scene, etc. So the idea of a memory bubble and being stuck in it, possibly connected to like a Neo Latchkey kid kind of situation, that would be our first first, uh, uh, element to talk about, okay? 
The second element is the one you're probably most familiar with, and that is what I'm calling persistent nostalgia. Now, what I have always talked about um, in regard to this is, and I'm not the only one, is the idea that nostalgia is almost a built-in part of the business plan from the get-go. What I mean by that is, and and not, don't get me wrong, not all ideas work. Just because you have an idea for a comic book or a TV show or whatever, it doesn't mean it's going to sell or find an audience, of course. But what I mean is, for those properties that are a little bit more established or at least have a little bit more financial muscle behind them, and they kind of know they'll find at least somewhat of an audience, it feels like they're not just thinking what they used to, which is, we got to get this on the air, find an audience, make our money now, blah, 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 blah. It's almost as if they're thinking, we make our money now, and then in 10 years, we'll make sure we do a reunion, and then 15 years, we'll do some other thing, and then we'll do the reboot in, in you know seven years or whatever, and then we'll sell t-shirts and tie it in, and we'll make sure that the logo, if, if through social media, it seems like they like the logo a lot, and it means something, or they've created a meme around the logo, or there's something joke associated with it. You know, So we'll make sure that we monetize that or put that out in a funny or sort of ironic way. So nostalgia or the idea of looking back doesn't seem like, and again, I'm talking for the entire audience here as a guess. It doesn't mean this is actually happening because I haven't actually surveyed the audience, but nostalgia seems less of a choice for some members of the audience anymore, rather than sort of a increasingly accepted cultural norm that we are expected and want to look back on things. So, I've always connected this to uh, one of my more favorite uh, academics in this space, and that is uh, Eviatar Zerubbabel, who a uh, sociologist at Rutgers. And uh, uh, I had, you know, full disclosure, uh, his, his spouse, uh, Yao Zerubbabel, who's also a very famous collective memory scholar. Uh, she was on my committee back when I was in grad school. Anyway, I love their work. But Eviatar's uh, one of his concepts he's known for is the idea of pre-ruins. The idea that people would construct statuary or certain objects of memory, sorry, certain objects, not to be objects that represented an idea in contemporary times, but with the intention that eventually it would become a ruin, eventually it would become not just an object, but an object of memory. And so for him, you know, and others, but uh, the easy example there is, of course, the Third Reich, right, who famously thought they were going to go a thousand years, and they sort of built and designed things for that purpose. But in a very watered-down sense, I always like to connect this idea to business practices, because in some ways, at least in a, in a watered-down version of nostalgia, it feels like we're building pre-ruins. You know, it feels like we're we're not just building for today, but we're building with the expectation that you're going to want to remember this stuff later and revisit it and obviously pay for it again, right? To, to, see, to see the new version of it or the reboot version of it. So, you know, the easy examples here, of course, is what you've all heard about, you all know about, and that's intellectual property or IP. So because there's such a tight and tough content market out there, Businesses, of course, most business people are not, uh, unless you're a, a, a venture capitalist or a real risky entrepreneur, you know, most business people like the tried and true thing, right? They don't want to take risks. So they would much rather open a movie or a TV show or a book or a comic book or whatever 
uh, even if it doesn't really have anything to do with the original concept, if they can at least use the title that will trigger some sort of familiarity in the audience, they'd rather go with that. Now, you've seen this in TV show reboots all the time. I think, uh, um, well, I won't give too many examples here because, again, I don't want to date the podcast too much, but I know recently, like the Marvel comics, they seem to be just using random team names and team uh, uh, and and you know, team names, character names, names from old storylines, and they just sort of randomly assign them to new teams, new storylines. And I don't think they really have any connection to the old one, except that older fans are going to recognize, oh yeah, that that name, that was the name of this team, huh? I wonder if that's sort of you know, and then it'll at least get you to stop and and look. So of course recognizable IP is a big, big component in leading this sort of business strategy with a persistent nostalgia. But then there's also, and again, all of this, remember what the point here is, is, is what's making it easier for us to exist in a state of arrested development to sort of time travel, to sort of live perpetually in the same time, the same moment. And that's also, there's content that specializes in it. And it's been, it's not a new thing. It's been around for before, you know, smartphones and all that. But I think of things like Turner classic movies, you know, that celebrate that very specific golden age of Hollywood. Now, more recently, they have expanded and updated their content. They're increasingly incorporating more, you know, films that have existed in the past, say 30 years rather than, you know, 60, sorry, 70, 80 years ago. But nonetheless, you can understand or envision an audience member who is sort of, you know, their primary go-to is maybe checking the news, checking the weather, maybe a certain kind of cable channel, and then otherwise TCM. I mean, this is a very specific example, and I'm not saying that they means that they're arrested in, in sort of arrested development, but I remember hearing an interview with uh, comedian Maya Rudolph, who's married to... Uh, 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 Anderson, the filmmaker who did uh, Boogie Nights and, and I can't think of his other films right now, but she kind of joked that because, you know, she's an actress and he's into films that, you know, nine times out of 10, you'll find their little TV. They have an old school TV in their kitchen and it's usually on TCM. You know, they just, they just love the old stuff. You know, they kind of both for their job, but also jobs, but also, you know, it's just, they love that time period of, of that kind of, those kind of films. So, the idea of memory bubbles because of uh, smartphone technology allowing you to sort of easily revisit um, the material you like, that's one part. Per- culture of persistent nostalgia, that's a good business uh, strategy. Um, also, the idea of wanting to lead with IP and that there's certain sort of content that specializes in it. I think all of that sort of also makes it much, 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 much normalized and easier for you to sort of hide out for good or bad reasons within particular eras or years. And then my third part, and if you'll remember what my working title for this episode is, it's sticking with the stars, you know. And so my third part is dead celebrities, right? Now the role that dead celebrities play is that it seems kind of easy particularly the stars who existed within the era of motion images rather than predominantly still images, because in still images, 
you kind of have to do the Ken Burns thing, right? You have to sort of animate it and make it move and seem engaging and interesting. It's harder to sell the still image than it is, or especially black and white still images than it is moving images and particularly color moving images. But the idea is, and this is my argument always with celebrities from the 1960s, is that there's already so much footage available of these folks, either through their work itself or media interviews and, and, and what we now call paparazzi, you know, sort of footage that there's so much uh, imagery available and content that you can revisit it and revisit it and revisit it as much as you, you, you would like to. And the, my point with the sixties celebrities is I always, I always kind of am tickled when they make a fictional narrative film about these celebrities. And I'm thinking of like the Will Smith Ali movie or whenever, you know, someone's doing a music biop uh, biopic and like the Beatles show up in it. And it's obviously influenced from some footage that we know exists of them recording or rehearsing or playing live or whatever, or from a photo shoot. And I always think like, why did you need to fictionalize this? Like that footage is there. Like Ali was the biggest talker in the world. Like, you know, he's on film everywhere. And and honestly, he's more interesting and charismatic than Will Smith or any other actor. You know, I'm sorry. Like as particularly at being Ali, right? Ali was the best Ali. Um, so the point is, is that you sort of have to ask, is there enough footage or material to satisfy the person who wants to continually revisit? Because obviously you'd think about it of, sorry, as, well, if there's only so much footage and it's not a ton of it, and I've watched it all a million times, won't the person get bored of it? Won't they crave something new? Yeah, I could see that as a counter argument, potentially. I guess it depends on the level of, 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 of obsession. So that's why I say, I guess there would have to be enough footage or material, um, large enough of an archive that you feel like you can continually get lost in it. You might forget certain parts of it. You want to revisit certain areas that you haven't spent so much time in. So again, to stay in that time period, you know, I mean, in the, in the long view, Elvis Presley didn't have that really long of a career. He really didn't live that long. I mean, he was really only on the scene for about 20 years. And even that he wasn't doing music all that much other than the, the crappy, um, film soundtracks. But you know, there's, he, he recorded a lot of bad stuff. There's a lot of material out there. Same with the Beatles, right? There's a lot of material there. So I think there would have to be enough of it that you, you could sort of keep some sense of variety, uh, uh with it. And then, of course, there's always a chance of new footage unearthed. You know, that, that's always a way to kind of keep people's uh, fires stoked. So I think of, you know, again, with the Beatles example, John Lennon, uh, a lot of his home demos, home tapes, family films, that sort of thing. A lot of it did sort of trickle out in fan circles not too long after he died in, uh, you know, during the, uh, well, in 80, but, you know, then through the 80s. But more so now, it seems like more sort of trickles out and is circulated online, etc. So again, that, that, that provides new utility there. But there's another, there's a couple other ways where dead celebrities aren't really quite so dead as, as you think they are, and thus are still a lot of fodder for engage, continued engagement with them. And the first, of course, is that just simply fans who want to create new material about those celebrities and in their famous roles in new media that's based on the content they originally were in. So, and of course you have to have the backing of some sort of rights holder or studio or someone who has the money to put it up. But 
you know, I'm thinking uh, a few years back when the rights issues finally cleared up for the Batman TV show, which was tangled up between um, uh, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, ABC, and the Dozier estate. Once that all got cleared up and we got that beautiful Blu-ray box set of the, the episodes officially released finally, suddenly a lot of fans started making new comic books. You know, there was now a Batman 66 comic book series beautifully written and beautifully drawn. There were animated films that uh, now at the time Adam West was still living, so he voiced the character again in the animated films. But the point is, is that, you know, if you enjoyed Adam West's work as Batman, you know, no, you're, it's not going to suddenly be 1967 again. And, you know, he's not going to be looking the way he did in his 30s in that suit. But through other medium of animation, comic books, novels, et cetera, et cetera, maybe some, something else, maybe a podcast, right? We can, we can expand the content there and then use our imaginations to connect it back to um, the original production uh, and to, to keep up our, our satisfaction. And then, of course, the third uh, element that I have, at least for today, uh, within the idea of dead celebrities is, again, probably the one along with IP that you're most familiar with. And that's the idea of using CGI technology to literally reanimate uh, stars. So think Carrie Fisher in that Star Wars movie uh, or uh, uh, Cushing, also in the Star Wars movie. But more importantly, to go back to our idea of persistent nostalgia or pre-ruins is we know that if you are young, good-looking, big-name actor who is signed on for one of these huge Disney films, especially if they're like a fantasy film, action-adventure film, etc. They, they think of it as going to be a franchise, basically a continuing intellectual property endeavor. You're not just signing up to f- shoot a film as an actor. You're basically signing away your likeness, right? They are 3D scanning you, right? Your face, etc. Because they want to, down the road, if they need to, be able to harness those digital assets so that they can slot you into a film, maybe for just a scene or who knows down the road, maybe it'll get good enough where, you know, you'll act through half the movie or something, even though you unfortunately died um, long ago. And this of course connects to, if you remember my conversation a few episodes back about um, uh, Bruce Lee and Chadwick Boseman, right? Right now, it seems like they're not really going to do too much with Chadwick Boseman, um, but maybe down the road, if they've got his assets and it's realistic enough, maybe he does return in the role or some other role, you know, who, who knows? So to reiterate, we're talking about the ability to be trapped in a persistent um, memory loop, right? Uh, being able to reconsume the content from a previous era and in a sense time travel or persistently time travel. And today I focused on three elements, memory bubbles, persistent nostalgia and dead celebrities. And I just want to end this episode. And again, this is probably be a little shorter episode than what you've been used to this season, but I don't want to waste your time if my thoughts aren't completely fleshed out. But the last part that I want to add here is the idea that, What's the context? And it goes back to those intentions for nostalgia. Now, the cynic in me wants to say that as we continually are told this rhetoric, that everyone is 
polar opposite from one another in the United States. And not only that, but because of that, we're never going to be able to have a dialogue with anybody. And more importantly, no one's thoughts could ever change or opinions ever change. There could be no personal growth. The point is, it's a bit of a doomsday rhetoric, right? That there can be no change. It's bad times. It's never been worse than ever before and blah, 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 blah. And it's just getting worse. Now, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll set aside the tangent here of whether this is indication for our place in history and whether we are going through a down period, or maybe this is the beginning of the decline of the empire and blah, blah, blah. Those are, those are interesting ideas to think about, but that's not the point today. The point today is then I could definitely see as a cynic how a person would want to use this ability as an escape hatch from that kind of messaging, right? Oh, we're so divided. Oh, things aren't good. Oh, but you know what was really great? And again, I'm just making up years here. 1981, 1986, 1994, 1998, 2000, well, maybe not 2001, but you know what I mean? Like 2004, 2005, whatever that moment was in their earlier life that was a good time or perceived as a more time of innocence. So I think that definitely, definitely is a possible motivator here combined with those other reasons I I provided. And the more positive option here would be as we have taught younger people, rightly so, that identity does matter, that being themselves is important, that finding their tribe uh, is, is also very necessary for their identity. And basically, you know, you know, sort of transforming the old phrase of, you know, let your freak flag fly to more like let your fan flag fly then, you know, that messaging is, it's okay to be me. It's okay to present my likes. It's okay to present who I'm about. And when you combine that with the um, easiness to engage with the stuff you like, they just might simply be as they age, right? Because again, you can't really be nostalgic too much when you're young, although unless you have a real bad case of, of trauma and need to get, you know, back before a particularly bad moment. But as they age, they might just be like, well, look, you know, I, I always post and tweet about what I like and what I'm watching right now. Why wouldn't I be allowed to, or why shouldn't I sort of remind myself and remind others about what I used to like and what I continue to like and that I sort of live with this. And we see that in a lot of, lots of different ways, you know, um, obviously Facebook, not that young people are using Facebook, but the idea of memories in Facebook automatically quote unquote generated memories, or at least previous posts, that's a normalized behavior. And before smartphones or anything like that, there's always been retro fashion enthusiasts, you know, people who construct their identity around sort of dressing like they're from 1942 or they're dressed from their 1957 or whatever. Right. And so they sort of wear their fandom on literally wear their fandom uh, as a way to establish identity, to be more um, stable, uh, sort of mental health wise, et cetera. So there's definitely could be a potential uh, positive uh, situation with this as well. Okay, so with that, I don't think I'm going to waste any more of your time. Again, this should have been a much shorter episode than normal, but if you've stayed through with me to the end, I do, as always, appreciate it. Because again, I think you're interested in these ideas, and I'm hoping that I'm helping you to sort of maybe put some vocabulary to it, or at the very least, maybe you'll have a a fun conversation with somebody over lunch after you've listened to this, maybe on your 
your commute, you know, your morning commute, or at least maybe your commute from your bedroom to your, uh, uh, off home office. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know, but either way, I just want to end by, uh, again, reminding those, uh, who haven't already, uh, figure this out. We have the main feed episodes always every two weeks. So two weeks after this, you'll see another new episode. Although admittedly, we only probably have maybe two or three more episodes left in this season. So um, if you haven't listened to yet, or this is your first episode, who knows, maybe binge the whole limited series over the holidays and maybe you'll have a little more time. And again, if you're interested in what we're presenting here, you know, uh, hey, it would be great if you went over to Patreon and uh, checked out the archive or checked out the new bonus episodes. So basically, in a sense, and honestly, I'm I'm terrible. I I don't have the numbers in my head. But those in the main feed, you know, you're getting like six or eight new main feed episodes. If you're Patreon, you're basically getting anywhere from what's that math? 12 to 16 total new episodes between the main feed and the bonus. So you might want to consider chipping in there to get access to that content. Plus, if you haven't listened to us in the past, you get all the archive, right? You get all those, I think there's like 71 uh, old episodes up there. So, and, and a lot of them, you know, I say this as humbly as I can. I think some of them are pretty damn good. You know, I think there's some really good conversation there between Andrew, Steve, and I and some of our guests. So uh, please check that out if you, if you have the means and, uh, and the desire. And so with that, I'll just simply say, Again, I'm Jonathan Bullinger. I thank you for listening, and I'll see you again in two weeks. Bye for now. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized...